Hey, welcome to Scratching the Surface. I'm Jarrett Fuller, and this is my podcast about design criticism and practice. This week, I am talking with the writer, critic, editor, and curator Mimi Zeiger. Mimi has covered art, architecture, urbanism, and design for a wide variety of publications like the New York Times, Domus, Dwell, and the Architectural Review. In 1997, she founded Loud Paper, which was an independent zine and digital publication dedicated to increasing the volume of architecture discourse, and she is the co-creator of the U.S. Pavilion for the 2018 Venice Architecture Biennale. In this episode, Mimi and I talk about her early career working as an architect before discovering her true love of writing. We talk about the differences between writing and curating and the challenges with writing about design and architecture in our current sort of political moment. I've been reading Mimi's writing for years and was really excited to talk to her about all of these things. There's a lot in this one. I think you'll, you'll really like it. Remember, if you're a fan of the podcast and want to help support it, you can become a member for $5 a month or $50 a year to receive an exclusive monthly newsletter with additional content and episode previews. These memberships really help keep the podcast going. I just really appreciate all of your support and hope that you enjoy this conversation with Mimi Zeiger. to start kind of just with a little bit of your background and kind of how you got into all of this because you you originally studied architecture you actually went to school for architecture right yeah I went to Cornell for undergrad and I got a BARC okay and then I this was in the 94 I graduated I moved back to the Bay Area and I was working in San Francisco in what was the kind of tail end of the downturn there. Um, And I worked for a couple of architecture practices that where I was doing much more corporate and retail type work and was getting a little disillusioned with practice. Um, And then I sent out my grad school applications all over the place. And I wound up at SciArc, which um, is a little bit of a strange place for me to land having gone from Cornell and sort of the East Coast Mm. uh, sort of training, you know, Texas Rangers uh, sort of covering that and sort of the move into decon to a place that was super experimental. Um, At the time, it was on the West Side uh, in a building that used to also be the Baywatch Studios. And so, you know, those kind of Feelings of just openness and sort of playfulness, um, experimentation um, was all sort of in the building itself and in the park, you know, it was basically open to the parking lot. And um, it seemed like a good place for me. I I don't know why. It was actually, I think, a very visceral Mm. um, sort of decision to go there versus going to, say, like Columbia, um, because I had always wanted to go to New York and go to Columbia. Um, But it seemed like a better decision at the time. And at that um, that decision to go to SciArc opened up um, sort of the a world of sort of other ways of working for me. I have a couple of questions just kind of based on that. So I didn't realize that you had actually, you know, your very early career, you worked as an architect or in an architecture studio. When you were thinking about grad school, was that you know, as you just said, you were kind of, it opened up these other ways of working. Is that something you were hoping to get out of grad school? Or was that kind of this accident? What was the, what was kind of your mindset at that time? Um, when I went back to grad school, um, I kept telling friends, uh, I'm going to go to SciArc and I'm going to learn how to weld and I'm going to get into design build. Like I wanted a much more immediate way of practicing. I had been working at a company that was doing a lot of like retail interiors. I couldn't tell you how many like pottery barns I designed (laughs) over the, like the couple of years that I was there. And um, so I wanted something that was much more tactile, much more immediate. And I thought design builds might be a way into that. Um, Turns out I'm not a welding kind of person. (laughs) You know, what is it like measure twice, cut once? Like I can't even like measure like once. Like I'm lousy at shop. I um, am scared of the bandsaw. And so (laughs) when I got to SciArc, you know, I needed to figure out sort of what my 
MO was there. This was, and um, I was sort of excited to sort of in, in the same way that you were describing your own sort of trajectory about the, all of the stuff that is around architecture, right? right. Um, the kind of the curatorial, the writing, sort of pop culture. Um, this was 96, 97. Mm. I was in grad school. Um, you know, the internet was still fairly new. Um, yeah. uh, I was sort of immersed in sort of music scene and also zines. And so I began to look at sort of pop culture and sort of um, sort of alternative punk culture as maybe an expression for architecture to maybe draw from that to open up sort of new new ways of practicing and new ways of writing and you know sort of new voices. Oh, this is I, I mean yeah, it's the, I'm actually kind of surprised how how similar your kind of experience was was to my own and and this I want to talk about loud paper, which I guess started as as a project in grad school, right? It was my graduate thesis in oh, the same way okay. that your podcast is your thesis um, <laughs> and that it couldn't finish. Like I, I did right. three editions while in grad school and then continued to do like another 10 over the years okay. uh, afterwards. So before, before we talk about that, um, I have one other question and I don't mean to, I hope this doesn't sound like I'm kind of limiting or, or kind of defining your work, but when, I I know your work primarily as a writer, and I've I've thought of you for a long time as a writer, um, and, and we'll talk about kind of the other things you do uh, mm. in a bit. But how how do you start writing, or or where how did you know kind of all of these things you were doing writing bubble up as a thing that you were good at, or that could actually be a career. I'm not sure I ever thought I was good at it. I'm still <laughs> sometimes not sure that I'm particularly good at it. Um, oh, interesting. Maybe that's what maybe that's what drives everybody, right? Yeah. Um, but uh, I, I, it took me a long time to self-identify as a as a writer and not an architect. Mm. And then it also took me a long time to identify as a critic, not just a writer. Um, and so these have been sort of evolutions over my career. So now I, you know, now I consider myself a critic. And a curator, um, but you know, five ten years ago, I considered myself, you know, sort of a design journalist. Um, and you know, ten years before that, I was an architect who wrote. Um, so, in, right. you know, <laughs> you know, that, yeah, that this sounds so count. familiar now. Um, so it, it was a struggle, and I think what sort of moved me along was um, I'll always have that architectural training, and I think it actually gives me a point of view distinct from some of my colleagues um, in the sense that I really know how to like translate from sort of the arc of speak yeah. into, into real world. Like I, I have a patience for it that I think some people don't. Um, and, uh, but, but really as sort of a, as I moved to my, the idea of thinking about myself, it really was based on sort of like, what was it? I, how I went through my day. Like I began thinking <laughs> yeah. about sort of the techniques of writing um, and the techniques of shaping stories and sort of researching projects. And that was really what was driving me, not necessarily sort of the big architectural questions. Um, I mean, those are, those are latent, but um, so sort of that I think moved me towards, um, right, like sort of considering myself a journalist. And then moving towards critic, actually, I think I'm close, more closely connected to my early self mm. um, and the kind of architectural pursuit of what architecture can do um, and how architecture is positioned in the world, um, then maybe that middle period. Can you talk a little bit more? This is something that's endlessly fascinating to me, and I, I've talked to a couple people about this also, but could you talk a little bit more about that kind of those differences between being a writer versus being a journalist versus being a critic? Um, whether that's kind of a, a process question or an approach question or or a, an output question, um, the fact that you kind of had to evolve or had to, you know, there was a, a struggle maybe to identify as each of those. I would love to just kind of hear about those differences and why why they're maybe even different kind of in your career. Um, I can do my best. Okay. Uh, That's all I'm asking. <laughs> I mean, I think o overarching, I'm a writer. Um, I, I'm interested in the acts of writing, of, of sort of, of word, wordcraft, of research. Um, and 
I think what maybe this, the distinction between journalist and critic, I, I, I would probably always be a journalist. I take on stories that are research-based um, and that's doing, you know, I'll do interviews, I'll go out and cite work, uh, right. you know, I'll run down sources um, and report. But I think bringing a critic adds um, this other layer, layer that I think it has to be earned um, mm-hmm. and maybe earned over time, which is that I can see things within contexts now um, that it that maybe really early like loud paper kind of voice of like critical architecture voice um, was really snarky, really kind of slash and burn, like know it all. And then you went through a whole period of not knowing, right, of having to un- unlearn sort of those assumptions. Now I've sort of gained back a certain amount of expertise mm-hmm. and I can see how work sort of sits within sort of a larger context of history, a larger context of politics. Um, and the, and those are the kinds of things that I often hold architecture to or design right. to is these sort of bigger questions. I'm not out to do a full takedown of anything. Um, those are, you know, often fun to read, but actually kind of lazy to write. And, uh, you know, what I want to do is sort of think about sort of what are the deeper meanings and sort of what we're looking at, what kind of, or an exhibition or a book that we're sort of in, sort of wrangling with and really sort of take it, take it on and ask ourselves, what does this mean now? Like, what, what is that kind of meta thing um in, in, in it's sort of fun. I'll, funny i'm one of the i have a couple of influences i think that sort of were along the way um and, and you know those include folks like joan didion and right. dave hickey um which i think really were influential in voice um yeah. but also like someone like ira glass and oh, um, this american life and you know he he talks about how he does the radio program and that a story always has that moment of reflection mm-hmm. of that kind of that meta moment. Yeah. And, and I think sort of being a critic is about sort of taking on that meta, like, you know, okay, right. here yeah. this is. And then like, okay, like let's take that sort of like third act pause and sort of reposition sort of the things that we're seeing with against something else or within something else. Right. I, that's really interesting. I want to I, I want to hopefully connect this a little bit to to loud paper and then use loud paper to kind of talk about <laughs> your career since um, because I, I will admit that I have not seen kind of the original um, versions of loud paper. I've, I've o- I was only aware of it as the blog kind of format that it mm-hmm. became. But something that always interested me about that project, and I think about your work in general, and you started to say it in kind of what you were just answering, is that you were very interested in the story aspect or in connecting it to larger ideas. And so in Loud Paper, especially, um, there was a very clear kind of point of view. There was a very clear kind of voice to each piece. Um, but then you were connecting it to things like pop culture and, and things outside of architecture. Where did that I mean, I don't mean to be so reductive, but where'd that kind of come from uh, or that idea that you could be writing about this very specific topic within this larger world? Um, you know, I, if we go sort of to the sort of the beginnings of Loud Paper and we sort of set it in, you know, it's late 90s. Um, I'm living sort of in Santa Monica, like in, in you know, sort of think of L.A., Late '90s, going to Cyark, um, the the maybe the city itself and sort of the things that I was interested in, in within LA, you know, sort of music and mm-hmm. you know, sort of riding my bike down, you know, sort of mm-hmm. the Venice Boardwalk or not even Venice Boardwalk, but down like Lincoln Avenue, which uh, or Lincoln Boulevard, which was at the time like this really kind of like oh. <laughs> long boulevard that connected Cyark to my house and was like lots of sort of blank stores and weird sort of things going on. 
And I think the kind of the built environment itself was lending those connections, right? So you, mm. you know, mm-hmm. yeah. Or if you're dri- if you're driving it and you've got like um, KXLU on the radio station, <laughs> and you know, so you've got like you know, sort of like I don't know, who was I listening to at the time? Like someone like the Eiler set, okay, um, yeah. or like Sebastian, or like yeah. Super Chunk, or you know, like whoever right. was like in my ears, and you've got that as your soundtrack. Um, and then you're sort of looking out in the world. It's not so far from like uh, Rainer Banham, right? Right. Who's also yeah. making similar connections between sort of uh, the kind of the built environment and sort of the stuff of culture, whatever, however kind of junky or fragmented that might be. And did you want to see, I don't mean to, I hope I'm not kind of projecting this onto you kind of in retrospect, but was part of the, was part of the kind of initiative or the drive for that project to basically be able to read more writing like that? You know, like, were you kind of trying to put out what you wanted more of? You know what I mean? (laughs) Um, I think, yes. I mean, the subtitle of Loud Paper was, uh, is, um, increasing the volume of architectural discourse. Um, like it was, it was meant to sort of play both ways, right? It was both louder um, because I had felt that architectural writing was really kind of quiet. It was, you know, pre pre blog explosion that you're talking that you were talking about early on. Mm-hmm. Um, pre like wall things like wallpaper or dwell right. like you know sort of like the the kind of mass uh, mainstream consumption of architecture and design hadn't hit, um, and so architecture itself was really a much more either academic or very trade. Right. oriented thing and I wanted I wanted architecture that looked like the kinds of things I was reading you know that you know it was like I wanted architecture yeah. that was like chick factor right um you know yeah, yeah, yeah. um so so I think in that sense um yeah I wanted I wanted more places for me to write and I wanted more places for my friends and like like minded thinkers. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So when you so you finish grad school, and you have this, this kind of zine that you've put together, what did, you know, what was the what was the plan? Were you going to were you kind of fully in? I am a writer now? Or kind of what came after that? There were some rocky years after that. (laughs) Yeah, of course. (laughs) Um, I had went back up to the Bay Area. I was working briefly for an architecture firm, okay. um, doing kind of more horrible, like, sort of stuff. I remember spending a day um, hand shading sort of a uh, Mediterranean style, like, strip mall. You know, like, <laughs> yeah. like what am I doing? Yeah. And um, I luckily was able to transition to um, teach part-time mm. and, and then part-time continue to do loud paper. And it was through loud paper um, that this is probably around 2000 that the folks from the, the magazine that would become Dwell got in contact okay. with me. And Carrie Jacobs, who was the original... Yep. Um, editor of uh, editor in chief of Dwell. Uh, I remember getting on the phone with her and her offering me a job to be an editor at Dwell, and she still teases me because she says, "I can't believe that you turned down um, being an editor at Dwell to continue to work on your zine." <laughs> um, but that's what I did. Um, I don't regret it because I became a frequent contributor to Dwell at that time, and Carrie was actually an incredible. Uh, mentor for being able mm-hmm. to sort of give me a platform to sort of really learn the skills of of journalism and uh, making mm. stories. Yeah, that weren't just sort of snarky zine stories. <laughs> right. Um. And it, and it's from there that I began to sort of build um sort of a, a larger freelance career. And so this, that it was like literally this kind of thing that happened over time, even kind of post immediately post grad school you weren't even thinking of yourself as a writer, even though you were publishing writing. Yeah, I, I think I was, I think I was still thinking of myself as an architect who wrote mm-hmm. uh, or someone who writes about architecture. Like it wasn't it, yeah. the clarity, the clarity of that identity really did take quite a while to, um, 
to sort of crystallize. And it's, you know, you mentioned earlier about that, that all of this was before the kind of wave of popular design and architecture writing and this kind of explosion of this culture. How did that, I have two questions around that. How did that change kind of your job or or kind of how you were writing or what it meant to be a writer when this subject that you were writing about that there wasn't a lot of people caring about it and it was a kind of insular thing suddenly became popular? I I think it was really exciting. If I I mean, you, you know, I think what drives a lot of us and and you were making reference to it when we first got on the phone or on the Skype, um, it is fandom. Yeah. Um, like that, that there is an enthusiasm and like, you just, you know, you want, you want to be in the mix. It's not like, you you know, I'm, I've rarely been a person who wants to be like, um, like I'm ambitious, but I'm not like, I want to be like that top person. Like I just, I want to be in the discourse. Like that that, that is sort of like, I want to be in the mix. One of the voices like in conversation. Um, and, and that's what's really important to me. So to, to sort of watch it explode and expand and for my own education to sort of see where different outlets are and begin to write about them. Um, that was what, was really exciting was sort of being um being able to get access into this this conversation and watch the conversation take shape and then even track with people who have continued to be sort of friends and collaborators um you know i think about someone like um sam jacob um yeah uh, you know of of formerly fat and you know when fat was like a brand new studio um he contributed some stuff for loud paper. We were in conversation. Like the zine itself began to find people like me. Um, and right. it was really kind of exhilarating as we began, you know, people all over the world and the internet culture, like allowing us to connect, um, to find these sort of like-minded folks and, and, and know that they were out there and sometimes collaborate and, and sort of build, build an alternative scene to what was, what yeah. was there before yeah i mean you're exactly right this is something that i've thought about a lot and actually doesn't come up in these conversations as much as it should as i was mentioning before we started recording that you know my kind of first introduction to design was as this suburban kid who suddenly kind of found these design blogs and part of it was this thing that i had always liked suddenly had a name but the other side of it was that suddenly i saw that there were other people that liked this thing too, which was a, a new thing for me. And I think I, I, the way you said it, I thought was perfect of just wanting to kind of be in the discourse or kind of be in this community. Um, I think it's like, a, it's just an important part of this that, that I don't think I talk about enough. So I, I love that you kind of brought that up. <laughs> did it also, on the kind of flip side of that, did it also open up the subject matter i mean you didn't just stay writing about architecture in the traditional sense and it's become much more about i i don't again i don't mean to put these kind of definitions around it but design in the widest sense where you have kind of written about all of these tangentially related things how did that (laughs) was that kind of happening through all of this yeah, I mean, I think it, it's driven by curiosity. Um, it's driven by sometimes editors who um, think of me for a story and then they're like, hey, do you want to take on, you know, mm-hmm. I'm trying to think of a good example and of course I'm drawing a blank. <laughs> but, um, you know, but recently um, for Landscape Architecture Magazine, I pitched them a story about um, the legalization of pot and what that was going to do to the California landscape. Oh, interesting. Um, and that became like one of my favorite stories um, to work on. I think I did that last year um, because it, it just sort of like the people I got to talk to, how they were sort of approaching it. Like these weren't designers. These are like sort of like entrepreneurs um, yeah. and law enforcement officials. And like suddenly like where I'm fused, I'm the design filter. I'm sort of looking at it through like, okay, this is like landscape and what does this mean? Um, but I get to sort of like parse all of these other points of yeah. view. Um, plus everyone was so nice. And um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> 
<laughs> if you ever want to meet the nicest people in the world are like growers. <laughs> right. <laughs> I, that, that raises another... Um, that raises another question that I, I'm always curious about, and it's kind of about the role, the role or the position of the critic or of the writer. And we kind of talked about this earlier when you were talking about the profession or, or, or about kind of the, the audience for this type of writing opening up. And something I think about in graphic design, especially is so much of graphic design writing is written for other designers. Um, and architecture, I think, you know, as an outsider who has never been in the architecture world, it seems like architecture has done a good job or architecture writers or critics have done a good job of being able to write for people who are not in architecture. And so the question that I'm, I guess I'm trying to get at is kind of, who do you think of as your audience or how do you write for? Or, or is this something you even think about writing for something that can appeal to those inside, but also be relevant and interesting and educational for people outside? Um, yeah, no, I, I don't think there's a single audience. Um, okay. And I think one of the things um, that is, is part of the role of the critic or the role of the writer is to... Um, be able to modulate your voice, not not lose your voice, mm -hmm. but actually modulate it based on sort of what the platform is. So if I'm writing, say, on disease, an opinion piece, like that can be a way more wonky. Like it can be a little bit more inside baseball, right? Because I know that this is a pretty like hardcore architecture audience and mm, architecture yeah. design audience. Um, and I can make sort of like, global we statements and sort of understand that these are the folks who are in, you know, in, in on board with me. Um, but then in other outlets, you know, I need to take on a, a much more sort of, sort of more, a little more passive sort of right. point of view, um, or a little, maybe sort of take, take it back a level, sort of make it a little mm -hmm. bit more inclusive, inclusive might be the, uh, yeah, yeah, the, yeah. the way to, to put it. Um, to, so if that is a kind of a more, a broad trade magazine or um and or that, sort of a shelter title or, or or a newspaper or something and does that kind of come out based on like is that something you're conscious of kind of at the beginning when you're writing is that something that kind of comes out through editing or like how do you kind of modulate between those um, those differences or is it literally a kind of essay by essay basis it, it can be a real essay by essay basis. Um, okay. it, it, a lot of times it's, um, I mean, what rule number one when um, writing for uh, an outlet is to know to the voice of right. yeah. that outlet. Yeah. Um, so, uh, you know, I'll, I'll read other stories. Um, oh. in, in, in other places I've, you know, just have long-term relationships. So I sort of automatically know um, how, how much voice I can bring to the table. And Sometimes it's really a relationship with an editor. Um, right. You know, I think when we talk about often in, in writing, um, the editor and the editorial process gets dropped out. I've served as an editor yeah. um, many times over the years. And so that, that relationship, um, having a good editor, sometimes a pretty like strong editor, um, can also sort of, sort of change what you're, you know, how, how you're looking at something and how, how you're uh, sort of writing about it. Right. I want to... I want to talk a little bit about curating also. Um, and, you know, you, you, you were a co-curator for the U.S. Pavilion for this year's um, Venice Beniali. And I'm going to ask, I'm, I have a couple questions around that, but I'm going to ask a very <laughs> probably oversimplified question to start. Um, but how, what's the difference uh, between being a critic and being a curator? Or did that change how you had to think about the work kind of when you're moving from text mm -hmm. to space and objects and you know all this other stuff um yeah i think one of the things that's been part of my practice and slowly sort of integrated into my practice probably over the last 10 years it, it is curation um I think it grows more out of my editorial practice mm, um yeah. and um, my sort of enjoyment of bringing people together. Um, so if yeah. that's like through curating programming and then that 
sort of becomes curating exhibitions um, and sort of smaller exhibitions and then larger ones. Um, so it, it's without talking about relational aesthetics, um, I want it maybe it's relational, right? Like right. as an editor, you see um, you see works in sort of a whole say issue of Loud Paper or an issue of the LA Forum newsletter or an issue of um, the Architects newspaper, all think places that I've edited, Architecture magazine I edited. You, you see all of these pieces sort of together and sort of how they're going to sing as a whole mm-hmm. and um, who are all the different sort of players and stakeholders in that. And then I think curation is not dissimilar from that, right? That you're right. bringing together yeah. um, various people's work and then you begin to nurture that work um, based on sort of a you know a structure and idea uh, concept, um, right. and then it sort of manifests right in the galleries, and then a whole secondary set of readings opens up, and that's the exciting part, and that's always the exciting part in making publications too, right? Is right. that you bring yep. these things together, um, and then and then there's sort of the the through lines when you know some someone says something in one piece, and then it echoes in another one. So in the ga- in the galleries at the U.S. Pavilion, something is said in the first gallery, and then that's echoed in the last gallery. And like I have a little bit of like a geek out um, because yeah. we have like rocks in the first gallery um, that are taken from Memphis, and then we have an asteroid um, in the last gallery that has you know sort of come come to earth you know yeah yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it happens in both of these like sort of as a uh, a material question of stone and um you know and i get a little bit of like uh you know like oh my god that's like totally worked um <laughs> right yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> um you know the uh, the theme this year was dim- dimension dimensions of citizenship dimension of citizenship dimensions of dimensions citizenship. of citizenship and I have a question that might be kind of this is this is a weird question, but uh, about two years ago, I think it was either right before or right after the election, you wrote a piece. I think it was for Dizine that was kind of it was about a lot of things, but it was kind of asking about architecture and design's role, kind of in response to crisis or in response mm-hmm. to kind of the world at the moment. Uh, and it was a great piece. I, I I loved that essay. And as I was thinking about our, our conversation, I was wondering if dimensions of citizenship is somewhat of a response or an answer to the questions you are asking in that piece, where you are kind of looking at architecture in the built environment in regards to kind of our political situation and what it means to be a citizen and to be inside and outside and walls and bridges and kind of like all the stuff you were asking about two years ago seems like this is kind of an answer. And I'm curious if you, if you think that interpretation could be right, or if that's something you've thought about. No, it's, that's a really perceptive sort of connection there because um, that piece that I wrote um, around architecture and crisis, um, and then another piece that I wrote um, a little time right right after the election. I think the architecture and crisis. I think I wrote during um, the 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 sort of the Black Lives Matter sort of the summer of oh, yeah. sort of police shootings and things. Um, and then right after the election, I wrote this piece um, around sort of architecture and speculation. Oh right. And right. what what you know. And so I think both of those pieces are. Um, frankly, I had a responsibility to maybe to those pieces um, that that maybe <laughs> yeah I needed I needed to try to answer those questions um, through this exhibit and and that's a lot of a task to put on a participant um, uh, one of our exhibitors um, but but I think there was in in the in both of those pieces something that I wanted to make sure that we got out of. Mm-hmm. Um, we may not have a full answer to it in, I think we have directions in, in the pavilion. Um, but I think those were definitely, um, resonating with me and I'm kind of excited that you picked up on that because, um, they, they definitely felt like I had, I, I was like, oh man, as a critic, like I've put this stuff out there and now as a curator, um, I have to kind of own up to these things that I I have asked for. Yeah. And what was that, what was that process like, or kind of how did you even, you know, with your kind of collaborators and the, the, the people that you invited to participate, how did you kind of start to think about 
kind of responding to that theme or to to really look critically at design's role basically in our kind of current situation you know how does that how do you start to kind of articulate that in that process um well it was an extremely collaborative process so my co-curators um neil atkinson and louis and iker kill um like we were in a room together um you know, basically brainstorming the, these ideas. This was probably, I want to say maybe this was like last August. Okay. Uh, like, you know, just a little over a, a year ago. Um, we were sitting in a room. We had we had already dinner, been told that we had the proposal that had been accepted. Okay. And we really needed to sort of um, figure out like what our tone, what our direction was. And... You know, we just were having these incredible conversations where we all brought different things to the table. So Neil is a historian um, with okay. a interest in sort of Venice and Florence and you know, the Italian Renaissance and the questions of sound. Um, I'm a critic. I'm bringing like these big, you know, like, hey, ar- what does architecture can do? Um, you know, both Iker and Anne are architects, but they also are deeply involved in sort of different ways of practice Mm -hmm. and so we all like brought all of this you know sort of stuff to the table and began like we uh, the story we love to tell is that we ended up creating an artist brief um out of that that was something we called turn ons and turn offs it was a list and it was very much inspired by fluxus and oh yeah the idea that um a list is more than just sort of a list of words, but that there is cross connections between them. Uh-huh. And we didn't want it to be do's and don'ts. Um, we also were quite inspired by sort of ideas of 68 mm. um, and sort of into the 70s, like, um, you know, sort of the uh, Whole Earth Catalog, Bucky Fuller, yeah. like Do It, yeah. like, you know, yeah. all, of, all of these things were sort of in our sort of cultural memory. And so... This list began on one side and turn ons with with Afrofuturism, okay. and it and it ended that list that the turn ons with resistance, and then the turn offs. If I, I can't quite remember what it began with, um, but it ended um, with utopia, uh-huh. and um, you know I think we were really trying to set um, kind of parameters or a brief. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, that would give our participants a lot of meat to work with. Um, you know, so I think there were things on turnoffs, like, you know, there was like turn ons was like jokes and turn offs was like inside jokes. Oh, interesting. Um, okay. You know, so we wanted to have, even though we had this really serious conversation, um, about what does it mean, you know, to, to make architecture and sort of have in a sort of around citizenship right now. Mm-hmm. Um, we also wanted to see if we could bring some humor, some lightness, some playfulness to to this concept because you know this is how we live now. Like this, right. this we are in, you know, sort of we are in a kind of a bad joke, and right. uh, we we need to figure out how we operate within it. Yeah, I mean, it, it's interesting. The reason I ask, the reason I ask kind of such specific questions around kind of the process or the thinking is because as I was thinking about it, preparing for this, to talk to you about it, I I was thinking about how this podcast started um, kind of mid mid 2016, but I launched the first episode came out October 2016, like a month before the election. Uh, And it was this kind of, you know, I was talking to these people about the importance of design criticism, and then the election happened. And suddenly it was like, Man, this seems so superficial to be talking about design criticism right now. Like, is this actually a a worthy subject? And the more I thought about it, um, I think, and similar to to kind of what you were just talking about, is that design plays such an important role in um, in all of these things in various ways. Whether it's things like like literally built the built environment down to things like, um, you know, filter bubbles and fake news and things like that are all kind of design problems. And so I'm, I've just been thinking about how much my, 
the criticism that I want to, the design criticism that I want to see more of, the design criticism that I want to write more, I'm, I'm very much a product of my time. And like, that's kind of like where my interest is right now. And it, it sounds like I'm, I'm, I'm like, the question I'm trying to get to is, has, has that kind of changed your approach to writing about these things? Um, uh, how do I say this? Um, the number, the number of fucks one gives, um, yeah. has decreased, um, greatly, yeah. uh, you know, sort of coming, coming down to like a little bit of a zero fuck policy, right. um, my French, um, you know, it's hard, it's hard to write, um, about lightweight things right. in, in essentially uh, a time of crisis. Um, however, like you can also bring the seriousness of where we are now to, to sort of things that are maybe more frivolous um, and continue to sort of, sort of wrangle with and analyze um, you know, sort of what, what does it mean? Like I interviewed, um, Willow Perone, um, who basically, Willow is the basically creative director mastermind, um, who works, um, basically behind Yeezy and Kanye. Kanye. And I interviewed him. I read that. I read that. Yeah. You wrote that. Yeah. Yeah. And I wrote that piece kind of in the middle of the biggest crunch to, to get the work for dimensions of citizenship out. And, um, at the time, like my head was full of, um, a lot of like Fred Morton and undercommons and, Mm. um, you know, questions of like, what is it, what does black space mean? And like, sort of how how do we move move through it? And, you know, sort of who, who has rights and access of citizenship. And then I go and I like, you know, go to Calabasas and, (laughs) you know, you know, sort of, at the time I was like, it was, I almost, there was a potential to talk to Kanye. Um, it never, it never, it never, it didn't materialize, but I think the idea that potentially, you know, I would, could ask him about black space, um, was really at the back of my mind. Um, but you know, Willow brought to the table questions, um, of ecology, questions of belonging, um, that, that we may not have gotten to if I had my head had only been in like um, fashion and like right. celebrity. Like this was right. like we ended up talking for not a lot of it made it into the piece because it was a fairly short piece. But like we ended up talking for like quite a bit about you know sort of like what 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 remains like what lasts yeah. um, and that in a way the work that he's doing with Kanye is about like, like things that are sort of brutal enough to sort of withstand the end of the world. And yeah. like, you know, a, a, yeah. a city, a city that's now flooded and float and water bottles are floating all over, like, you know, right. a little bit, uh, you know, if it may be a little bit like lemonade, um, you know, yeah. it, it, to, to, to mix my, <laughs> it works. Um, I, I get it. <laughs> but, uh, you know, but then we're in this like, okay, like this is with, this is something we can get to. Yeah. Um, and it's just as meaningful, um, you know, that we were able to get there as it is that, um, you know, it, that, uh, you know, that, that, you know, so whatever the new, you know, sort of headquarters that they have out in Calabasas yeah. um, is all about, what which, if, which is quite beautiful, um, but, but such a strange place. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, the images in that piece were just, I loved them, but I also, it did not seem like a very creative place actually it seemed very cold and and sterile and when i was there it was um you know those photos were completely contrived or were taken very early because when i was there it was full of stuff like endless amounts of samples and and reference materials and books and people and uh which is it's kind of too bad it'd be great to photograph it like kind of as a mess and um because i think it maybe tells more about the kind of creative influences going on at easy. Um, but yeah, it, it's, um, yeah. Yeah, it. <laughs> that's interesting. What, um, what else are you thinking about right now? Or what, uh, you know, as a, 
as a critic or and, and writer and just kind of general thinker, what are the other issues or topics that have been on your mind lately, either that you're currently writing about or want to write about or just kind of thinking about? Um, I think one of the questions that I keep coming back to, and I've sort of been working on this for a couple of years now, um, uh, is the idea of slowness. Mm. Um, and actually sort of, and this is responsive to the kind of barrage of the news cycle that, um, I'm often feeling sometimes, sometimes the, the responsibility of a critic is to respond quickly. Um, so like something happens and right. you make a piece about it. And I've been kind of resisting that, um, that way of working, uh, of late and trying to build a little bit of latency into the process so that huh. um uh that i'm slow so basically it means i'm slow um <laughs> right. okay you know <laughs> yeah like so like oh you know something will happen in the news and i'll respond to it um you know a week maybe two weeks later bringing in yet another reference that you know sort of might sort of begin to sort of tie things together but it's not i'm not responding with a one hit in in the moment i'm maybe right. responding with a more complicated uh maybe complex uh yeah. sort of condition um a little bit later and, and that's been a way of practicing that i have been trying to get to um and trying to sort of coalesce so that's something i've been thinking about and related to that um with a, a group of friends that i've been collaborating with for quite a long time um with my friends Enrique Ramirez, who's um, a yeah. historian and a design writer, uh, Michael Kubo, another historian, yep. uh, architect, um, writer, and Chris Grimley, an architect and curator who runs okay. Pink Comma Gallery. The, the four of us have had a, an ongoing conversation about lateness. Oh, um, interesting. So, and this is sort of related to slow, um, but it's also kind of a generational um, condition of okay, we grew up with late modernism. We grew up with late capital. Um, oh, that's we're so interesting. A little bit behind the beat um, in, as a generation, so because we're all relatively Gen X. Um, you know, how do we begin to start a conversation about late? And, mm -hmm. and that's something that we're actively working on right now. Um, it, it is combining, yeah. So the the economic. Uh, the aesthetic um, and sort of maybe this uh, cultural drag yeah. uh, so that again, we're not responding in the heat of it. And this is maybe because we have historians on board in this conversation, right? That, right. Uh, you know, maybe I'm, maybe I'm an aspiring historian. I, I don't think I'll ever go back <laughs> and do a PhD, but, um, uh, but yeah, I think I am surrounded by them. And so we, we tend to think of things in sort of the, in the, the long view, right? The, yeah. as, as the Obama view, right? <laughs> right, um, right. That, I, that idea of slowness, I think, is actually really, um, really interesting. And I'm, I'm thinking about it. That immediately reminds me of Rebecca Solnit, who I feel like mm -hmm. has, is, is a master at that, especially now where, there'll be something in the news and everybody writes their think piece. And then like two weeks later, she'll have something on, on lit hub or wherever she's writing that just connects a bunch of these things. And I'm just, every time I'm like, why do I read anyone else? Like, why don't I just wait for, for her, her opinion on this? Um, and you had mentioned, uh, this is my last question. You had mentioned some people earlier that have kind of inspired you or, or kind of shaped how you think about writing or, or, you know, people you consider good writers. But um, I always like to end the podcast with uh, kind of a reading list or a, a book list. Um, are there essays, books, writers, critics who have kind of influenced you or that you find yourself coming back to again and again that, um, that you'd want to share? Um, sure. Um, I mean, Solnit is an incredible example. <laughs> and, you know, I... <laughs> I don't, sometimes I don't feel like I'd be able to get through these times with, without her, yeah, same. Uh, you know, so definitely being able to sort of, uh, set the tone, um, for, for being able to have a clear perspective to keep up sort of the resistance, um, yeah. and keep up hope. Um, other, other things that I've been reading and 
uh, well, I think I mentioned Dave Hickey and mm-hmm. Air Guitar as, um, as someone who I've always come back to um, sort of for a, a punch of like, yeah. how do you really make a, like a, your statement, right? Like, right. How, how do you just kind of like get it out there? Um, you know, I was recently uh, rereading Sorkin oh. um, for a piece that I did for the Architectural Review. Um, and, you know, his, his sort of statement of, um, you know, all, all architecture is political. Uh, and uh, so, you know, I, I come, I, you know, I come back to sort of uh, collections of criticism um, from time to time, um, Rainer Banham, but uh, right. often um, Esther McCoy is, uh, oh, is often my, go- my go-to for like anything on LA is I look to see what she said. Yeah. Um, uh, I don't know her often, as well. More times, yeah. Um, yeah, I don't know her as well as the others. I, she's someone I need to catch up on, I feel like. Uh, yeah, there's an incredible volume of her work called Piecing It Together that came out a few years ago and um, okay. highly recommend that book. It, it Sometimes it's almost like an I Ching. Um, <laughs> okay, nice. Right, you can just drop in and be like, what does is, what is, you know, Esther yeah. have to say now? Uh, and let me think. I'm all, I'm always reading stuff. I just finished um, Rachel Kushner's um, The oh. Mars Room. Oh, I've heard good uh, things about that. Uh, it's kind of devastating um, and amazing, and and in a way that, that tone that um, like this is maybe overstepping a little bit because I don't I don't think we achieved it in the same sort of way that she did. But the a way to have some humor, mm. humanism. Um, and sort of seriousness in, in something that we were striving for for the pavilion, I think she is able to really create a very nuanced um, view of um, sort of the justice system right. uh, that is, is like pow- powerful as anything. Yeah, it's been on my list for a while. I got I to gotta pick that one yeah. up. Yeah, and I guess her flamethrowers is, is brilliant. Oh, yeah. So I highly recommend that one. <laughs> Thank you so much for being on the podcast i'm a big fan uh i kind of love your work and how you and talking to you just how you think about these things and just found this such an interesting conversation so thanks uh thanks for being on the podcast thank you it was a real pleasure this episode was recorded on june 29th 2018 our theme music is by andy borgasani we're on twitter and instagram at surface podcast you can find us on apple Podcasts, google play soundcloud and at scratching the surface.fm thanks for listening <laughs>